Hey everyone, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. This year, I was fortunate enough to give a science talk at a Star Trek convention for the very first time. My panel on the astrobiology of Star Trek at Star Trek Mission Chicago was as challenging and rewarding an experience as any. And while I thought I did a pretty good job, I still wonder about how it could be even better next time. Well, today's guest, Rika French, is a science communicator and educator whose work I really admire. As a professor of astronomy at Mira Costa College, Rika is dedicated to sharing the wonders of the universe with non-scientists in the classroom and beyond. As the Associate Director of the Center for Astronomy Education, Professor French researches how people learn and develops new tools and curricula for teaching astronomy to college-level students. And as a Trekkie, Rika is an acclaimed speaker at Star Trek conventions. So obviously, I'm super excited to ask Rika today about her experience speaking with fellow Star Trek fans about astronomy at the latest two Star Trek Las Vegas conventions, and also about her teaching and outreach philosophy. Ready? Engage. Professor Rika French, welcome to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. Super cool. Thank you, Mike. I'm very glad to be here. So I'd like to start out by asking my guests a little bit about their Star Trek origin story. So how did you become a fan of Star Trek and what role has Star Trek played in your life? I have to say I, I was maybe peripherally aware of the original series. I'm not quite old enough to have watched it first run, but I did watch Next Generation first run. I was in high school when Next Generation started. I didn't watch it from the very beginning, but about the time I was graduating, so I was about 18, 17, 18, and so I was catching Next Gen first run and was really just into the, oh, can it really be like that one day? That would be so cool. Like, Can we really live and work on starships and and do that kind of work the investigating the the science the cultural investigations just for the sake of knowing just for the sake of bettering our culture our humanity our as it turns out then right uh, relations with other species right mm -hmm, <laughs> in the mm -hmm. galaxy and i've always been a sci-fi freak i've always been a science oriented nerd i was always that person in school. And so it was just, it didn't get me into science. I was always that person from the very beginning, but it was more of a, oh, it could be like this maybe one day. <laughs> so it was just really a, oh yeah, I'm in. I'm all in. By the I was hooked. Captain Picard was my captain. Yeah. I Earl Grey tea. I've been drinking Earl Grey tea since right about before that time. And uh, that's still my drink of preference every morning. I'm not me if I don't have my Earl Grey every morning. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so not uh, maybe not as similar as some of the others who do oftentimes give Star Trek a lot of credit for getting them interested in what they ended up choosing to do. It was not that way for me. This was just a bonus. This was just an, 
oh, well, maybe I'll kind of go that route, meaning into something to do with space, because I was the kid, I wanted to be an astronaut and all that stuff. So it was always like that, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I just knew I strongly preferred math and science. And so this was a show that just, along with many others of the late 80s and early 90s, just was kind of like, yeah, I'm all in. I, I'm living for the day. Maybe one day it'll be like that. That's my mm -hmm. hope. <laughs> yeah, my hope too. So you, you mentioned that you started off with The Next Generation. Did you continue watching Star Trek through Deep Space Nine and Voyager, etc.? And have you caught up with the recent television shows or streaming shows on Paramount Plus? Almost all the way. I did definitely get into DS9, first run, real time, Voyager as well, and Enterprise also. I moved around a little bit during some of those years. And so there was some periods of time where I ended up missing a bunch of episodes. And then because of the Enterprise airing originally on UPN and the whole network snafu, I happened to be in one of those places where they lost the rights to air it for a while. And so I definitely didn't see the end of Enterprise. I have now caught up with all of the older versions. So I've definitely seen all of Next Gen, DS9, Voyager, and Enterprise. I haven't finished the current season of Discovery. I started it, but I haven't finished it yet. I'm caught up with Picard. I'm caught up with Lower Decks, but I have not started the new season of Prodigy. So I guess I'm, what, two weeks behind maybe on yeah. two or three weeks right, on Prodigy. But I haven't caught up with that yet. But I was current right before we just started. So I've just missed the first new couple ones. Okay, cool. Yeah, I may have a question for you uh, later on that deals with something that happens in season four of Discovery. So I don't know if spoilers are okay, but uh, I, it, I, it's okay. It's okay. Okay. Yeah. We'll okay. get to that yeah, when we okay. get to that. <laughs> I'll get over it. It's fine. Yeah. It won't, it won't ruin it for me. Sometimes okay. it's annoying. Sometimes it, I don't care. It's fine. I, I don't get really upset about it like other people do because I don't know. A lot of times I'm just like, I don't remember enough of that. I have to go back and watch stuff anyway. It's fine. Good. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> so I know from Twitter uh, that you were able to go to the latest Star Trek Las Vegas convention this past summer. I always love going to those. They're such a blast, but I wasn't able to make it this year. So what did I miss? What was like the biggest thing <laughs> that you loved at that convention? Well, let's see. I definitely enjoyed being on one of creation stages. I, I, I can't say that I enjoyed it more than what I did last year. Last year, I was also uh, in Vegas, but I was on uh, the Roddenberry stage last year. Mm. Um, so this was just like a change of venue for me, but I very much enjoyed it. Veterans of the, the convention know that we were in a different physical location. And so the the layout at that particular hotel was maybe not as conducive to the type of event that we were having. So some of the places were kind of far apart and it felt a little bit disconnected at times, but that was just a function of the physical layout of the facility. And for those of uh, our listeners who haven't been to a convention yet, what, what's the difference between the Roddenberry stage and one of the creation stages? Right. So creation is the convention host, um, the, the owner of the convention, formerly known as Star Trek Las Vegas, right? That's now known as the whatever year it is mission tour. <laughs> so this past <laughs> year was the 56 year mission tour. Um, and so creation has two stages, the big main stage, which is where all the, the headlining stars from the various series uh, do their, um, if they're on a panel, right? Or if they have a session, their own a Q&A or a moderated panel or what have you, then that's the main stage. Then they have a secondary stage, which 
they put out a call for speakers, you know, like us. But the good news is it's for anybody, literally any person, fan or not necessarily a fan, can submit and then they choose a selection of proposals. The proposal process is actually fairly simple, um, but you do need to have a really good idea right, of what you want to do. You do need to have some concise sentences of explanation, kind of like an abstract, but at the same time, it's more of a, here's what we're going to do, right, in this session. And then they they choose a selection of folks and then let you know. And that's different from the Roddenberry stage because since the convention is run by Creation Entertainment, the Roddenberries are, I guess you'd say they're technically guests, although that sounds kind of like we're dissing them a little bit. And I certainly don't mean that at all because obviously they're the Roddenberries, right? So yeah. um, they call it the Roddenberry interactive stage. And so they have uh, Roddenberries in creation have an arrangement where um, they agree to also put on some independent programming on the interactive stage. And it's called the interactive stage. Anyone who is fortunate enough to be a part of their um, stage presentations has to have sort of an interactive thing. So it needs to have audience involvement in some way, shape or form. And so you'll, um, they also do the put out a call to anybody, right? So it's a possibility for anybody to be accepted. And they do things like um, panels on all kinds of issues, you know, social issues, political issues, all kinds of stuff to um, costume uh, recommendations and tips and tricks from the people who are really good cosplayers. Um, Gosh, they, they do just almost everything. And so I was fortunate enough last year to to do an Astro 101 panel, similar to what I did this year, just like I said, on a different stage. And so I specialize in teaching astronomy for non-science majors. And so I see this as an opportunity for folks to ask astronomy questions. And so rather than me just get up and talk at them for ever how long it is, right? I, I try to keep it to maybe 25-ish minutes and then leave whatever the rest of the time is that I'm fortunate enough to have so that people can just ask questions. Because as someone who's been doing Astro 101 for non-scientists for so long, it's, well, for me, it's really interesting to find out what people don't know. I also do education research. So that's interesting for me as well. But just to simply give folks a safe space to ask questions and not feel dumb for not knowing something. That's that's part of my job that I get paid to do. And why shouldn't I be able to share that? I'm fortunate enough to know some of the stuff, right, that goes on up there. I know a little bit about that. So I'm more than happy to share that with anyone who's willing to listen. And so I've been fortunate enough the past couple of years to do that. And and I really enjoy um, having folks ask those kind of questions and put me on the spot, so to speak, and and have a good discussion with other folks jumping in too, which is my favorite part of the whole thing. And so while it's not exactly what you call a panel, it is me on the stage, but at the same time, I prefer to get my kind of intro stuff out of the way and then open it up to everybody. And then they ask questions. And if people in the audience know something about the answers and want to jump in, that's that's what I want. I want to facilitate those kinds of discussions and I want everyone to feel comfortable and excited and happy to maybe come away knowing something that they didn't know before about astronomy. So that's, that's what I saw as my purpose the past couple of years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm not sure what the layout looked like at the new hotel that the convention was at this year, but I remember in years past that Roddenberry stage would be like sort of in the same place as Quark's bar. And so you always had to like compete with the noise from Quark's <laughs> bar. And the secondary creation stage is always in this like very large but dimly lit room where there usually isn't like a lot of people 
in there because most of the crowd is in either the vendors hall or the main stage watching, you know, some kind of big panel, maybe like a discovery cast panel or William Shatner is out there or something like that. And so sometimes when there are not very many people at a science of Star Trek panel. I'm like, really? That's weird because, you know, Star Trek is set in space and like, <laughs> why aren't you at the astronomy panel? And sometimes when there are a lot of people, on the other hand, when there are a lot of people at the science of Star Trek panels, I'm like, whoa, that's amazing because, you know, I thought you would be here mainly to see like the, the cast and the producers and everything. And it's so cool that you're, you're here. So I, I was just wondering, like, yeah, uh, how did you find the audience engagement? Were there a lot of people that showed up um, and were they enthusiastic about learning about space? Yes, both years. And I don't know if that's, well, let me, let me just say, I, I can speculate as to a couple of reasons for that. But honestly, I had not been to one of the Vegas conventions. I'd been to Star Trek conventions before, but I hadn't been to the big Vegas convention until last year. So last year was my very first one. So I don't have any baseline for comparison at the big creation Star Trek event. But what I'll say is that both years, I got time slots that when I was originally told what my time slot would be, I wasn't that excited about it, to be perfectly honest. I was like, oh, that's a bummer that's there's not going to be that many people there right so i was kind of bummed about that last year on the roddenberry stage and you're right it, it it's in the same area combined with quark's bar the good news was that i was at 5 p.m and so i thought that's okay it's gonna be happy hour soon <laughs> i can milk <laughs> that for all it's worth right because they can hear me they're just right there they yeah. can hear me so maybe i can suck some people in that way so i was fine with that um, but the, the other thing is that I intentionally don't bill what I have done as the science of Star Trek, because there are people doing that already. There, there's plenty of folks that give those kinds of either talks or interactions. And so I wanted to, I wanted to step a little bit away from that and give people more of the, the pure science. And like I said, the astronomy, I, I guess, Part of my speculation as to why I've had good crowds both times and good interactions, I think, is because I was just trying to do some basic astronomy. And as you well know, astronomy usually sells itself, right? You don't have to do a whole lot, right? It's one of the sexier sciences, right? We have the best pictures and the fanciest instruments and right, the coolest tools and toys to play with. And so I, I don't have to do a lot for promotion that way. Last year, I remember starting my session with... There was maybe only a handful of people on the side where the Roddenberry stage was. It's like I said, it was five o'clock and it was actually Thursday, the night before the main part of the convention started. And so I was like, well, you know, people just be getting here. There won't be that many people there. And I'm kind of bummed about it. But, you know, whatever, I'm going to do my thing and it'll be what it is. It'll be fine. And so I started and there was maybe, I don't know maybe 15 or 20. I, I didn't really count, but there weren't that many people in that area, but there was a few people over by the bar. <laughs> and so they were kind of separate. Um, by the time I was done and it was about, I, I think it was either 45 or 50 minutes because they left a little bit of passing time and the next thing was starting at six o'clock. By the time it came time for that, there was standing room only. The place was absolutely packed. There were people standing along all the walls and they weren't headed towards the bar. They were facing our direction and they were paying attention to what I and the rest of the audience members, they're asking questions. And it was one of the best feelings I think I've ever had when I've done a public outreach event. I was like, yeah, 
this is why I came here. People were asking questions. We had an amazing conversation. They basically had to come and drag us, me off the stage because people kept asking <laughs> questions and they were like, we're really sorry, but the next people are supposed to start at six. And I'm like, oh gosh, yeah. I mean, I obviously I'd stand and do this all night long, but yes, mm -hmm. someone else gets to take their turn. Let's be respectful of that. And so as they're trying to get us off the stage and move on to the next thing, the last question asked was, where can we find you again? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. I was really excited about that. And so I actually ended up sticking around, you know, kind of in the back of the room. For a while and had a line of people that wanted to talk to me. And I was a little freaked out. I was super excited, but I was a little freaked out because I'm like, I'm nobody. I'm just an astronomer. There are dozens of us here at this meeting. There are dozens <laughs> of us and there's nothing special about me. I just happened to get lucky and get chosen to be on stage for a few minutes. But uh, one person even asked me for an autograph. I was like autographing a program. And I looked at him and I said, you know, I'm not famous, right? And he goes, maybe one day you will be. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's the, okay, what, really? <laughs> and then I had a stack of business cards because people were like, oh, how can I contact you? And I'm like, wait, I have business cards. And I thought, this is the most bizarre thing. I'm handing out business cards at a Star Trek convention. And they were all gone. I had none left. I had a stack of like 30 business cards. Because I, I think I carry like a pack in my bag because I go places and you yeah. never know, right? Right. Like 30 business cards and they were all gone. It was the most bizarre thing. And it was one of the most amazing experiences. I got to meet Rod Roddenberry. He actually stood there and chatted with me for a while about how he was so excited that I was here. And I'm like, but, really? <laughs> <laughs> and apparently it's because he's a huge astronomy buff. He talked about his dad taking him to Mount Wilson and how he got to yeah. work on Mount Wilson for a while as a younger man and talked about the HK project, which is something that most stellar astronomers know about the HK project. And he just went on and on. I'm like, wow, this is, I mean, I'm having this cool conversation about astronomy and Star Trek. And then it's like in the back of your head, this is Rod Roddenberry. <laughs> <laughs> Did not really anticipate having this conversation. It's not like I didn't think I would see him, but it really honestly never occurred to me that I would have the chance to talk with him one-on-one -on -one because he's Rod Roddenberry. He's got to be doing a million things, right? And their stage goes, you know, all day, every day, right, of the convention. And so what are the chances that he would want to talk to me? Apparently pretty good. So that was super exciting. Um, yeah, there was no shortage of questions. I even had someone post on Twitter after the fact that um, my daughter wanted to ask this question, but she was too shy. And Aww. so, of course, I responded to her and I was like, oh, I wish you had done it in person, but that's OK. We can answer it here. And then I think it was her mother, maybe that had posted it for her. And she came back and responded with, oh, thank you so much for you know responding. I'm like, well, yeah, that's what I was there for. That's what I'm here for. I'm super excited. I'd love to do this. And so I kind of you know, thought, well, I wonder if I could do something similar next year. I wonder, you know, what's going to happen then. And so this last year, I got lucky enough to be chosen by the creation folks for one of their stages. And so I, I thought, well, you know, it's, it's the creation, one of the creation stages instead of the Roddenberry stage. So am I going to get a different audience? I mean, I'm sure there's probably gonna be some of the same people, but it was a different time slot. I was, uh, let's see, I think it was Thursday morning. Which again, you know, it's Thursday, right? It's the day before. And you're like, oh man. And this was Thursday morning. So I'm like, oh my gosh, nobody's going to be there yet, right? Nobody gets mm -hmm. there until like Thursday afternoon and evening. And, you know, I got in there and got set up. And there were certainly people there from the last session, but there weren't a whole lot of people that got up and left. There were people there. And, you know, by the time they were done, 
I think I, I'm just estimating because I certainly didn't count, but there were it's probably at least 60, 75 people in that room. And it was kind of the same thing in that people were not afraid to ask questions, which I was so thankful for. We had a good conversation that would have carried on longer, but the same kind of thing. They were like, all right, well, we're done. The good news was there was nobody right after me. I think we were, I think it was like a lunch break or something. So we got to stick around and, and chat with people, you know, afterwards. And so it, it was just super fun. I just wish I could, if I could just do that <laughs> like every so often, right? That it was so cool. It's absolutely probably the best two outreach experiences I think I've had. And I, I often, well, at least before COVID anyway, I do a lot of outreach. I rarely, rarely say no to a public talk or, you know, a school group with telescopes, you know, here in my area, I rarely ever say no to anything because I like to do it. And mm -hmm. These were by far some of the most amazing interactions and fun thing, fun gatherings. So it's really great. It's it's really nice to have an audience that came together because of Star Trek. And then it's obviously not a totally change modes, right? But switch to a, okay, but the astronomy part. Okay, so I have this question about dark matter, right? And then <laughs> and then we just go to town, right? Yeah. And yeah, it's just it's just super cool. It's just so much fun. That's so great. Thanks for sharing. I mean, what heartwarming stories to know that Star Trek fans are so interested in the raw science of astronomy itself. You know, I, like you, try never to say no to an outreach opportunity because I enjoy it and I also find it very fulfilling. And at the same time, I also find those outreach talks harder than giving talks to other scientists, because when I give talks to other oh, scientists, yeah. I can just hide behind my jargon <laughs> and sort of lean on their expertise and just talk about the details of my research. But doing a talk for the public is a whole different ballgame. I'm interested in your process because you're obviously very good at it. Can you tell me how you go about crafting a good science outreach talk or interaction? You're right. Talking to the general public is much more difficult. I mean, that's why there's a whole field about science communication, right? As you well mm -hmm. know, and and a lot of a lot of folks on Twitter, right? That that aren't scientists or um, just peripherally interested in science by you know through whatever means they have access to, are, are vaguely aware that there's a a whole community of folks across the globe dedicated to how to communicate science effectively to the public, right? To everyone, and. My joke, which, you know, it's not really a joke, but the hardest groups to give talks to are the tiny humans <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. the older folks, right? The seniors, the retired seasoned folks, right? Because even it, kind of in the middle, right, it's, it's still mostly okay, right? But the little kids have no filter, right? I mean, <laughs> there's absolutely zero filter. So if you try to, you know, put something past them, no, they're like, well, wait, but how come, right? A little kid, mm -hmm. right? But why, mm -hmm. but why? Because they have no filter and they're literally trying to connect the dots, right? So yeah. they're trying to form those pathways for learning with the context of stuff that they don't have yet, right? They don't have enough uh, worldly experience yet. They haven't been in enough science classes yet. And so you can't pull anything on children. They will call you on your crap every single time and you better have <laughs> answers for it or you better have a way to talk to them about it in a language and using phrases that don't talk down to them because you you don't want to alienate them either, right? I mean, you don't want to be full of I don't knows, but at the same time, you're obviously not going to know everything. But then again, you want to be able to, to communicate with them in a way that helps them recognize that 
you may not know everything and that's okay, right? It's mm-hmm. fine because life is a lifelong process of learning, right? For everything. And so you want to be able to communicate with them using cognitively developed phrases for their uh, stage of cognitive development. Mm. Um, so learning to communicate with the different age groups is not trivial at all. You can't use the same language that you use to communicate with full grown adults, obviously. Something that's really hard for a lot of scientists to do is to strip down what they do or strip down the hardcore science into the very basic pieces that are simple enough to communicate to a general audience, but that still glosses over a lot of what we do, loses a lot of the detail. In some cases, I don't want to say it might be scientifically inaccurate, but is not completely accurate, is not completely representative, simply because I need to communicate with an audience that maybe is not cognitively developed enough for the type of language that I want to use, or maybe it's not necessary for them to have all of those details. And it's okay that they're not getting a 100% scientifically accurate representation of it at this point in time. Mm-hmm. And so learning how to do that is absolutely not trivial. And then the the opposite end of the spectrum, right? The older, more seasoned folks, right? They've oftentimes had careers in science and engineering, and they have family members that have worked in science and engineering. And by the time you reach um, a senior citizen age, I, I think you you start to feel like I have a filter, but I don't have to use it. I've earned the right not to use it anymore. So they will also ask you plenty of unfiltered questions and they will also <laughs> call you on your crap if you try to pull something on them as well. So mm. the difference is the level of, like I said, cognitive development. So you can use different language, right, with the older audience than you can with the the younger folks. But both of them are similar in that respect that you better know your stuff. And for the stuff that you know, you don't know, (laughs) you better have good ways of expressing that without alienating them. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, helping them realize, like I said before, it's okay to not know everything, right? That doesn't mean you're not good at what you do. It just means there's a lot of stuff to know. Nobody's going to know everything. Here's what I do know, and maybe here's where we could all go, you know, help. we all have Google, I guess, right? A lot of us, right? Anyway, so here's here's a way that maybe some of us could go back and try to learn some stuff on our own. Or, hey, here's how to contact me, <laughs> right, mm-hmm, later. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that I have a specific process for it other than if I'm supposed to be giving a talk, then obviously I'm I'm preparing that talk, but I'm always keeping it in the back of my mind about how who is my audience? Who am I presenting to? Because you're right, giving a science colloquium, right? Where you can hide behind your jargon and what you do and some pretty intense plots, mm-hmm. right? And graphs. <laughs> you, you can't do that, right? And you, you better be able to have your, what, 30 second elevator pitch version of what you do or what they're asking about or why you don't know that maybe and how we could maybe go about finding out about it. So if I have a formal talk piece, then I, I I will sort of practice that myself, making sure I have certain phrases I want to say at key points, key slides, key images, that kind of thing. But I won't go so far as to say I do scripting. I, I don't do that. And, and I like to leave it a little open-ended and I like to leave it more conversational and interactional. So I, I really don't like to be the one-way transfer of you know information and let me speak at you there's a part of it that you kind of have to do that for obviously, but I don't want that to ever be all that I do during an outreach experience. So I want it to come across as conversational. I want them to feel like they can ask a question when that time comes. And so 
Yeah, it's just those things I keep in the back of my head with the most important being who is my target audience and how can I make sure to engage them appropriately, both for their level of cognitive development and what did I promise them, (laughs) right? Because you don't want to bait and switch them, right? You don't want to say this is what's going to happen and then show up and do something a little bit different. It's not that that can't go well, but people have certain expectations based upon what you said you do. So you keep that in mind and, and um, anytime it feels like it starts to go off the rails, right? How are you going to steer that back? And so it's, it's definitely a combination of your science background, public speaking for sure, but also just learning how to communicate with folks in a, in a way that, like I said, makes them feel safe and okay to ask what they think is a dumb question, right? And, and also to recognize that real people do science because that's a problem we have here in the U.S., right, with the state of science literacy, You know, it's not some ivory tower endeavor for, at least for all of us anyway, I guess that Mm -hmm. happens obviously, but real people do science. Anyone can do science. And a lot of people get so turned off from it at such a young age. And so I, that is a big thing for me. So every time I do any type of public outreach event, I always try to be hyper aware of how I come across, not just as a human being, but as a scientist, I don't want to seem inaccessible and like it's something that other people can't do. In fact, I want it to be to come across as quite the opposite because we we have that kind of problem here in the U.S. And so all of those things are just kind of floating around, going crazy in my head at the time that I'm trying to put together maybe a slide or two and, and pick those key phrases. So I don't know if you call that a process. It's more of a big I don't know. I don't even know what crazy set of ideas that you just sort of keep in mind because I I don't want it to come across as scripted. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what I'm getting is basically your superpowers are your adaptability to your different audiences, right? Knowing your audience uh, and also the adaptability inside of the event itself to try to steer things, you know, back to the main message if they get a little bit derailed by a kid asking why, why, why all the time. Um, And then also your emphasis on making it an interaction is also one big pillar of your outreach. And that helps a lot with making it seem like you're a person, right? You're just, you're just a person (laughs) just like they are. um, And hopefully inspiring uh, your audience to um, be empowered to think of science as something that they could do as well. Or at least feel empowered to ask the questions that they want to ask, right? Because yeah. that's that's something else that gets quashed pretty early on if you came through an American public education system, unfortunately, right? Especially in the sciences. So yeah, I I feel very strongly about that. I, I got heavily involved in outreach as an undergrad, actually. And that continued all through graduate school. And as I took on a full-time professorship, it's always been something that's very near and dear to me, which as any scientist in probably any field knows, public education and outreach is almost, almost never a part of the job you signed up for in academia, right? So you're almost never getting compensated, whatever that means for you and your job position, right? It's, It's almost always something you do as a labor of love. And Mm -hmm. so a lot of people put a lot of time and effort into it. And I did, at least before COVID, right? We're starting to come back a little bit. But yeah, it's always something that most of us do just because we enjoy it, just because we like it. It's always extra. It's always on our own time. And 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 that's okay because fortunately there's a lot of us doing it and and a lot of a lot of you folks are really good at it. So it's nice to have that in all the different fields so that 
like you said, we can humanize science as an endeavor, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's not so much doing science as it is humans learning stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. It's just humans learning about the world that they live in. Right. So we've been talking a lot about your outreach activities for the past half hour or so. I want to pivot now to your teaching. So you're a professor of astronomy at Miracosta College. I've had some good astronomy professors and some bad ones as well, but I'd be willing to guess based on our conversation today that you're one of the best in the business. Um, do you have any tips or tricks for what makes a good astronomy professor to deliver the wonder of the universe to a, a very specific audience now, right? College students. No pressure there, right? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um I don't know about one of the best, but I, I do think I'm pretty good at what I do. And I think some of that comes from the fact that while I was always STEM inclined as a child, I was always the kid that I always preferred the math classes and the science classes to a history or an English class. If you make me write an essay, I, I might cry. Well, no, I will cry. If you try to make me write an essay about something, <laughs> I will cry. I might actually go beat the crap out of a punching bag or something because I hate writing so much. In fact, it's one of the reasons I'm not published very much as an astronomer, which is somewhat unusual, right, for a research astronomer for certain. It's one of the reasons I'm not a research astronomer, too. I, I hate writing. I just despise it so much. I'd much rather just interact with folks who want to learn about it. So, so while I was always sort of science and math oriented, I also found physics to be pretty challenging. My bachelor's degree is in physics and I found it to be actually really challenging. So I feel like I have some of that perspective still of what it's like to struggle so hard to learn something that comes so easily to the person standing up in front of the classroom, right? Who sometimes forgets that. And so I always try to remember that no matter which class I'm teaching, I do very rarely teach physics, but it's, pretty rare, actually. It's been probably more than 10 years now since I've taught a physics course. But um, I do some uh, general physical science occasionally, but most I stay in the, the astronomy lane usually, and almost always the non-science majors, so the general education students. And so it's very important for me to always retain that perspective of don't forget what it is like to struggle so much to learn something that to you happens almost automatically in your head. And you think about trying to break down an assignment or uh, some sort of problem or question that you've asked students in your classroom to work on and where your brain is just immediately, doo -doo 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 -doo, right? Like, and just going crazy, right? And you know exactly what you want to say. It's so almost so fast that you can't write quickly enough, right? To keep up with your brain. Whereas your students are just sitting there like, right? And, and it's, it's scary for them. And yeah. it's not because they're broken. It's not because they don't, know how to do something, it's because they've probably had a bad experience, right? In a math or a science course, if they came through the American public education system, unfortunately, it's not very good for inspiring folks into STEM fields. I know we're trying. I don't want to just diss all the K through 12 teachers in the U.S. That's not what I'm trying to do. But I think it's not shocking for anyone. I don't think I'm revealing a big secret here to know that the state of science literacy, science and mathematical uh, numeracy, in the U.S. is significantly below where it should be for reasonably educated human beings that expect to be meaningful contributors to our society. And so I try to keep that perspective in my classroom that these are people and they're all people. 
they're all kinds of backgrounds. And I don't just mean age and race and those kind of demographics. I mean, they're going to go out in the world and be everything. They might be teachers. In fact, a lot of self-identified want to be teachers when they grow up, right, are, are choosing astronomy for their basic science course that they need to get out of college because oh, wow. they're seeing a list of things like physics and chemistry and geology and all these things. And they're like, Ooh, astronomy, that's got to be the path of least resistance to my aid. Get out of here. Right. And I'm a little sad about that, but I know this about who my audience is. And so I try to always keep that perspective. They might not have chosen to take this course for the reasons I would have hoped. Some of them do, but not all of them. And that's not the majority of folks in the class. But that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean we can't have fun with it. That doesn't mean they can't come away actually learning something. And so one of my jokes that I use on them is, yeah, I don't know. You might accidentally learn something, right? Stick around. It might happen <laughs> by accident, right? Wouldn't that be terrible if you accidentally learned something and then felt <laughs> smart about it later on, right? And so we try to keep that kind of attitude and that kind of perspective. And it's hard to keep the excitement up sometimes because there is course material that you need to get through. But it's about how can we engage with the material instead of just propagating information, because that's not how science is done either, right? You don't simply propagate information. You engage with the material. You engage with the physical processes. And even though you can't exactly do astronomy that well, right, in a general ed class, and your lab is kind of out there, so you're a little limited in what you can do, right? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, that doesn't mean there aren't ways to try and capture that excitement or that engagement. And so I just try to keep that perspective and remember like I said, it doesn't matter if I'm with the gen ed audience or the rare occasion that I get to teach in, you know, more like a, a calculus-based physics course, we're still going to have some of the same issues, right? People are going to feel like they're not ready. They're going to feel like they're not capable. They're going to feel, you know, inferior to other students in the course, right? Because humans are forever comparing ourselves to other humans, <laughs> whether we <laughs> want to or not, but to keep people interested and engaged and you can't do it with everybody all the time and that's fine but I try to do it as much as I can. And hopefully it works most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure it works more often than not for you. Um, do you incorporate Star Trek or your love of science fiction in general in your astronomy courses? Well, when I do Astro 101, which for the folks that don't know, that's when we say Astro 101 in astronomy, we're talking about the general education, introductory astronomy for everybody, you know, no prerequisites or co-requisites, anything. It's the, if I needed a physical science class to get out with a degree, this is the class people might take, right, if they chose astronomy. So it's usually, um, not in every case, but more often than not, it's usually a survey of the entire universe, the classic mile wide, barely an inch deep kind of thing. And so that's mostly what my audience is. And that's mostly what I do. In that class, I don't explicitly bring up Star Trek, except for when we do E equals MC squared, right? I cannot not say something about a transporter mm -hmm. <laughs> every time that comes up. <laughs> and then I usually will have students who are either into Star Trek or Star Wars or some other type of sci-fi, right? There's always somebody, right? That will bring up something at certain points in the course. And then that's my, that's my entry, right? That's my jumping off point for, you know, talking about it. Now, I do teach uh, um, an astrobiology course, kind of Ooh. sort of up your alley, but not quite as, as complex. It's still a general ed, so it's still life in the universe for everybody kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but in that class, I make a lot more references to sci-fi stuff because it's just <laughs> kind of kind of lends itself to that right, right now. How could you not? <laughs> um, 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, we we even covered towards the end of the class, you know, prospects for interstellar travel, right? Um, the whole idea of SETI, right? The search for extraterrestrial intelligence and the idea that we've actually been intentionally trying to signal aliens for what, over 50 years now. And that question of what if it works? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Has anybody thought about that? Because everybody's like, yeah, 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 we're searching for aliens. Yeah, but they gotta have somebody that seriously takes into account what if they answer? Yeah. Then what do you do? Right. And so we that's how we end up in, in that course. And so there's a lot of, as you can certainly imagine, and you know, I'm sure there's a lot of ways to introduce a lot of scientific and Star Trek overlap there. And so I do have some things, but mostly I leave it, like I said, I, I don't want to just be the transfer of information or, you know, telling and professing and preaching to them, right? I want it to be more discussion and conversational. And so I purposefully leave some blanks, if you will. So when we're having those conversations, I leave kind of big holes where I expect somebody in the class is going to say something here, right? They're going to ask me something about maybe this or that or one thing or another. And so that almost always happens. I mean, when you get students signing up for a life in the universe class, right? You kind of know you self-selected, right? <laughs> These mm-hmm. people want to talk about ET. They want to talk about their latest sci-fi. And so it's it's usually not a problem. <laughs> so I I don't do a lot of formal putting Star Trek into my curriculum, except for that class where we do talk about warp drive, right? It's a potential <laughs> propulsion system. Hey, you know, what are the potentials for that? And a, and a few other things. Um kind of along the lines of uh, what Muhammad Noor does, you know, what would aliens look like, right? Like if we were able to interact with a civilization that was capable of communicating, you know, two-way communication with us, you know, sure, what would, yeah. what do we think they might be like? And so there are opportunities to talk about those kinds of things. And so that's mostly done in my life in the universe course. Mm-hmm. It strikes me as fascinating that the way that you describe your students in your life in the universe course is very similar to the way that you described your audience at the Star Trek conventions. <laughs> There's this like enthusiasm yeah. for everything and they want to be there to learn. <laughs> Yeah, when you get a group like that, it's 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 even though both the Astro 101 intro survey course and the Astro at our school, it's an Astro 120. So life in the universe. But like I said, they're both for the same audience. They're both general education. Everybody is welcome. Really, the only prerequisite is are you registered at this school? (laughs) (laughs) Then you can, you know, walk into this classroom and take this class. That's really all you have to have happen. And so they're both for the same audience, but but you get a different, slightly different group of folks in the life in the universe class because the, like I said, the Astro 101s are, it's just everybody. I mean, life in the universe is everybody too, but the Astro 101s are the, I need my physical science credit to get out, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's why I'm here. And then in the life in the universe, it's, that could be why I took it, but I took this because I'm into aliens. I'm into sci-fi. It's called life in the universe, right? Like that's a cool title for a class. And Yeah. How do you, if you're interested at all, right? And so those people are kind of a slightly different group just because they've self-selected, right? It's like being at Star Trek convention. This is what brought us all together. They're there because they are already almost convinced there has to be life somewhere else. When you're in the Astro 101 and we talk about whether or not they think there might be some other type of life out there somewhere, at least in our own galaxy, the the Astro 101 class can oftentimes be divided, you know, maybe close to 50-50 as the yes or no. And there's some interesting reasons why the no's say no. 
And the yes is it's almost always the same reason, right? It's an awful big waste of space, resources. You know, if, <laughs> if we've learned, learned nothing, it's the building blocks are everywhere. Mm -hmm. And the situation that seems to have conspired to make life arise on planet Earth is maybe not as uncommon as we might have thought early on. I, I mean, obviously, the jury's still out, right? But at the same time, right. it doesn't seem as far-fetched that it could have happened on some other planet somewhere else. But then when you get into the 120 Life in the Universe course, almost everybody is like, well, yeah, that's why I signed up for the course. Right? Like, <laughs> I'm convinced aliens must exist somewhere, right? Life must exist somewhere. That's why I wanted to, you know, take this course. They're already interested enough. So, yeah, yeah it's in that sense, it's a slightly different group. So I also wanted to ask you about your research on education itself. Uh, I know that you've served NASA and the American Astronomical Society in their missions to teach science and better educate the populace about uh, science in general and astronomy in particular. So what are you learning about the ways in which people learn that impacts the way that you think that we as a society should teach science? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, it's been such a learning process for me because all of us who end up teaching at some point, we come into the classroom with all these ideas about how we think we're going to do it. And this is going to be the magic pill, right? Because I had this done to me and it didn't work. So I'm going to do the opposite of that. Here's what I think is going to work, right? But the one thing that we all have to remember is there is no one thing, right? There's no one mm, thing that works yeah. for it. There isn't a magic pill. But the thing that we've learned is the things that we've learned, very broadly speaking, how people learn isn't different in a science course than, say, from a history course or, you know, an, an English course, even though the content is obviously very different and you may interact with the subject material in very different ways. How people learn, it's such a huge set of processes that happen for everyone that there's not one way. I mean, you know, there's no such thing as I'm a visual learner. Or, oh, I'm an auditory learner. You know, there's no such thing as that. That comes from, gosh, a, what, 40 year old, 40 something year old paper that was taken totally out of context and misquoted is basically how that started. So it was not the case that this, because they like to claim that this paper was saying, you know, these people, there are certain people that learn better when they have, when they work with their hands, right? There are certain people that learn better by, you know, just simply listening. There are certain people that learn better by, you know, the visual cues. And the, the paper didn't say that that's what's happening. What it basically said is people learn by all of these ways. And it might depend on both the content that you're learning about, but also the context in which you're learning it and the environment in which you're learning it and some other things. But those are kind of the big things. You might be a better learner in one subject visually while you might be a better learner in another subject when I'm actually, you know, working with lab equipment and doing it with my hands. And so there's not one size that fits you as an individual. You use all of these methods of learning. Your brain just helps you try to select the one that seems to benefit you most in that space, in that time with that set of circumstances. So we know that's true, but then it boils down to if you're going to do physics and astronomy, and if we focus on astronomy, which has this huge general education population, and they're everybody, right? So how do we get them to actually learn instead of memorize, right? Because trained monkeys can memorize things, right? It doesn't mean they know stuff. I can memorize a lot of stuff. It doesn't mean I know what to do with it or how to use it. So how do we get folks who 
oftentimes feel not just afraid of science and math, but, you know, anxious. They actually have panic attacks, right? That um, they've been told, right, that they weren't good in science or math. They had that bad experience. And so they've sort of self-programmed, they're self-programmed for, I'm not going to be good at this. I already know this is going to be super hard for me. And it's like, well, it might be, but you don't know that. Give yourself a chance, right? And there might be other parts of the course that aren't going to be nearly as challenging as you thought but you've already kind of set up this mental roadblock. And so how do we get past that? And the short answer is you can't really get past it, but there are ways that we can engage the students with the content that helps make it more accessible to them. And what we mean by accessible in this context is makes them feel like they're capable of doing the critical thinking necessary and actually coming out the back end with reasonable responses interactions that don't make them feel stupid if they get it wrong or if they get it wrong that they need to recognize we get stuff wrong a lot it's okay it's how you learn i mean if you're right about everything then there's nothing to learn right so Mm -hmm. in order to learn you have to be wrong right a lot or at least have incomplete ideas not necessarily be explicitly wrong but you have to have incomplete mental models incomplete pictures of how things work so how do you do that with people who have put up this roadblock And the problem with a lot of the uh, physical sciences anyway, is that we don't learn how to engage with populations this way when we're in grad school, right? We don't Mm -hmm. teach each other how to be teachers. Um, Some programs are actually starting to recognize that and do something about it. But the bottom line is, if you end up teaching a course, you often just emulate what got done to you, right? And so it's not necessarily the best way to engage the audience. And so Um, My particular area of research focuses on um, the kinds of representations that we use. And by representations, I don't just mean the pictures and the words, but also it could be anything. It could be numbers, numbers that aren't actually equations, though, just verbal cues, even uh, body language cues, breaking down those kinds of graphs and charts and tables. And how do you present all of this information that you want to help them learn how to use and think critically about in a way that doesn't, like we said before, doesn't alienate them, but also helps them recognize there's a pathway through this to be successful if you'll just follow me, right? Follow (laughs) along with me. And so what that usually involves is making representations like figures, drawings, graphs, phrases in word questions that aren't usually set up in the way that research scientists would do it. In fact, very much not in the way a research scientist (laughs) would do it. Um, In fact, there's research that supports what we call the um, pedagogical value of these different representations that says, basically, the higher the research value of that representation, the less pedagogical value it has. Hmm. So in order to engage your audience who are novice learners in these kinds of ideas about the universe, you either have to develop new representations that use their cognitive context, which is not very deep at that point, right? Use that context appropriately in concert with whatever you've set up in your classroom, the way that you approach the situation and whatever background you've used already to talk about a topic in your classroom. But you have to, you have to always take that into consideration. And for a lot of topics, that means those representations just simply don't exist because that's not how we've been teaching astronomy. So most of the representations you find in a typical Astro 101 textbook are garbage. 
to a novice learner, to us astronomers, sweet. We don't have any problem with it all. So we look at the textbook and we're like, yeah, 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 this is a good one. Oh, I like the way they treat stellar evolution here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the <laughs> book I'm going to use for my class. And then your students just get so overwhelmed, right? They just get so buried and they don't not read because they just are bad students, right? Because they get a reputation, right? A lot of us in academia, like, oh, they don't read. They don't even come to class unprepared. Well, it's not because they're bad students. It's because it's so inaccessible to their ways of thinking that all you've mm -hmm. done is just blah, right? Astronomy research where I've changed the phrases that I think are appropriate for, you know, introductory college students. And that's not how you engage them. If you want them to feel like they can do it for themselves, because you basically just said, you know, sink or swim, right? With one of these textbooks. Yeah. And yeah. so you have to change the way that you approach all of these topics. I, I don't use a textbook anymore. I use the very popular lecture tutorial workbook for introductory astronomy, but I also use a lot of my own gosh, little snippets of video that I've put together where I, you know, I just strip it down to, if I want to talk about parallax, what do I need? Turns out I don't need a math formula to talk about parallax, right? But every Astro 101 textbook, right? When parallax comes up, they're just going to show you D equals one over P, right? Well, that's great, <laughs> but I don't need the formula to do that, right? There's a simple relationship that if you set it up, yeah, they're accidentally doing math, but they don't realize that they're actually doing the reciprocal equation with the things in the right units. They don't realize that that's what they're doing. They're just seeing this inverse linear relationship and they don't even recognize it as an inverse linear relationship. They're just like, well, there's a pattern here. Yes, <laughs> that's what an inverse relationship is, right? There's a pattern there. This one's inverse linear, but I don't need all that math garbage. I don't need to say all of that. And I don't need all of that to get them to understand what parallax is and how we can use it to determine distances to nearby stars in astronomy. And so recognizing what are the absolutely necessary salient pieces that I need. And that's it. How do I piece those together just to get them to where I want to be? And if there are representations, right? So do I need pictures? Do I need graphs or charts? You know, what phrases do I need? And so it really takes a lot of it takes a lot of time and thought, right? Because it really is stripping it down to what do I need? And then what representations do I need? And do those exist? Or do I have to, you know, don't reinvent the wheel because we've done a lot of them for you already. But at the same time, that's not true for every topic. So that's what I focus on now. And that's, that's what I spend most of my time doing. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, thank you for doing that really important work. A lot of the stories that you just relayed to me really resonate with some of my own experience being a teacher. Um, I remember when I was in grad school, I was the teaching assistant for a course where I remember going to the professor and saying, this problem set that you assigned is literally torturing the undergrads. And he yeah. basically said, yeah. isn't college about torture? I was tortured. <laughs> you were tortured. Shouldn't we torture these little kids? I'm just like, no, we need to find a better way. And I'm so glad that people like you are working on that better way of teaching astronomy. So thank um, you for that. We're trying. Yeah, we're <laughs> trying. <laughs> so I want to ask my Star Trek Discovery question now. So um, uh -oh. in, in, <laughs> in season four of Star Trek Discovery, um, Sylvia Tilly has a sort of character growth arc where she realizes that being on a starship, exploring the final frontier, being out there in space herself is not actually what she wants to do with her career. And she pivots 
to going to Starfleet Academy and teaching and mentoring Starfleet Academy students. Have you gotten to this point in season four of Discovery? I have not seen, I have not gotten to it, so I haven't okay. seen it, but I, but I have heard, a, I've heard some rumblings about it. Got it. Okay, cool. So in this case, let me ask this. So if you were to mentor Tilly or somebody, just anybody in general who is realizing that research and doing the science is less what they want to do and teaching science is what they want to make of their career, what advice would you give to somebody who's trying to make that pivot? Don't forget what it felt like when you were in their shoes. That may be the most important thing, right? It's like we said before, you do have to know who your audience is, but don't forget what it was like to struggle so hard to understand something that comes so easy to you and myself included, right? We all have these moments where we definitely forget that. We completely forget it. You know, in your head, you're like, I don't understand. You can't make it any more simple. Why don't you just get it? Right? Why don't you see it? And we've all had those moments as instructors, mm -hmm. but to always check yourself and take a step back and realize that nobody has the same context, background, uh, levels of exposure to all of the stuff that you did. They're not coming in with any of the experiences necessarily that you had, right? So the ways that different humans think about the different ideas, astrophysical ideas, are just as numerous maybe as the types of astrophysical phenomena that we investigate, right? With almost infinite possibilities. And so don't ever forget that. Recognize that there's always room for another way. You may not know what that way is, but somebody's going to need another way at some point in time. And there's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't mean they're broken. Just because they got something wrong doesn't mean they're broken. Don't assume that that means they don't understand something. It might just mean they've, I don't know, misread something, misunderstood something. Um, so always try to keep that perspective. That was something that was, it wasn't as hard for me to do as it was hard for me to remember. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Hard for me to always kind of keep that perspective. And, and it was kind of a wake up moment for me when I kind of got hit over the head with the, oh, you know, you're right. I felt that way in, you know, X class, right? When I was in, you know, undergrad or grad school or whatever, you know, oh, yeah, I, it's like you said, just because we were all tortured in certain ways doesn't mean we can't try to break the cycle, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean there's not a better way to do that. So just don't, don't forget that there's always another perspective that you probably haven't considered. Yeah. Infinite diversity and infinite combinations, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's probably my big takeaway. We you know I've been asked before that how, you know, how has Star Trek inspired your teaching kinds of questions. And that's, that's my only answer. It's not that, like we said before, that I explicitly put these Star Trek things right into my course content. It's that it's helped me to try to never forget how many different types of ways there could be to think about something, how many different types of people or species, hopefully, right, in the mm -hmm. future, might you be interacting with and maybe not be communicating with them in the best way that you could. And, you know, it's not wrong. It's not like you can't make a mistake. It's just don't ever forget there are always different perspectives that you haven't considered. There's always somebody going to be coming from a different headspace, a different set of physical conditions, a totally different environment than what you, than what you think. So don't assume, don't assume that you know the reason why. Yeah. That's such a powerful and important message. 
Well, Rika, thank you so much for joining me on Strange New Worlds. This has been an absolute pleasure to talk to one of the best in astronomy education and outreach. I'm sure just like all of your Star Trek convention audience members who came up to you asking, where can we find you later? How can we get in contact? All of our listeners on this show are probably wondering the same thing. So where can people find you on the internet? Yeah, so I am on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Rika Dink, R-I-C-A-D-I-N-K, all one word. I am also on Instagram. I forget about it a lot, <laughs> but I have it. Um, I go through spurts on Instagram. Also Rika Dink, but there's a period in between the Rika and the Dink part on Instagram. Um, I do also have a website. It's not very good right now. I'm in the process of rebuilding it. But I do have a website. I can I, I can give it to you or I can, you know, put it in. Yeah, a we'll put it in the show notes. And you can put it up. You can post it for somebody later if you want. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay. Well, thank you once again for being on the podcast and live long and prosper. <laughs> yes, thank you. The ways that humans think about astrophysical ideas are just as numerous as the types of astrophysical phenomena that we investigate. Wow. I'll never forget that quote from my discussion with Rika today. Yes, yes, and more yes. Just as there are infinite wonders in the heavens, there are infinite ways to wonder about them. You know, there is both a great diversity of students who funnel into Rika's astronomy classes and a great diversity of paths that those students will take when they leave. Thus, Rika has a chance to make a huge impact on the world through her teaching. And that's something that one day I aspire to do too. Speaking with Rika was such an insightful experience for me. It honestly made me wish I had done it earlier, before I wrote all of my teaching statements for this year's round of faculty job applications. What I learned from her today will be marinating in my mind for a long time, and I hope to implement some of these philosophies in my own teaching and outreach. For instance, up till today, I have been laser-focused on how to give the best talk ever. How can I smash this lecture out of the park? But now I realize that that is a very narrow goal, and I was particularly inspired by how Rika consciously reigns in the lecture part of her Star Trek events to savor her interactions, the true engagement with fans. Similarly, I love how the point of Rika's astronomy courses isn't just to memorize facts about planets, stars, and galaxies. It's so much more than that. It's the idea that by thinking about the celestial heavens, you can discover the wonders of critical thinking and realize how science is as human an endeavor as art, music, or literature, and find your own confidence asking questions about the natural world and going out and finding those answers yourself. If you're enjoying Strange New Worlds, don't forget to tell a friend about the show. You can follow me on Twitter at MikeY, M-I-Q-U-A-I, and this show at Science of Trek. 
Until next time, take care, stay curious, and I'll see you out there.